Hello and welcome to season one, episode four of the Future Urbanism podcast, hosted by myself, Neil Slotnick, aka Future Urbanism. Track in the background is titled Defrag by a Ukrainian producer called Marian Kitsenko, and this is the Jark Refragmented Mix. And if you've not guessed that one by now, uh, Jark, aka Nicola Machiavelli, is me. Um, tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to have a look at film scores, um, and I am hosting this with my good friend Andrew Myers. We go way back. Um, and we're going to go three for three. So we're going to discuss our favourite three uh, film scores, our favourite three OSTs. Expect a bit of, obviously, film and film scores, but also a bit of music production and synthesis chat. We hope you enjoy. So, uh, as said on the intro, um, we have got Andrew Myers uh, on the podcast with us today. Um, I mean, where do I even start with Andrew Myers? A friend of mine from school since, what was I? I was about 13, you were about 12, and we just went from there. And obviously we've got like a bit of a shared love of films, you know, Andrew knows far more than I do. But in more recent years, a lot of our conversation has been more about film sports and production, like that. So, uh, hello, Andrew Myers. Hello, Neil. How are, How are you? I am. I'm, I'm very good. As we were just discussing uh, before we started recording, yeah, life is strange, but uh, all fun, all fun. Um, so, I suppose the first question I'm going to ask is, how has lockdown been for you? I mean, aside from the Daniel Ricciardo style haircut, enjoying <laughs> the uh, the lockdown experience. Yeah, I think there's like a whole. Someone could do a whole thing on lockdown haircuts. I reckon it's become a bit of a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, but uncontrollable due for our side. Um, it's been all right. Um, I'm fortunate enough to still be working, but then it's that whole weird thing of work time blurring into like home time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit weird, but time's moving quickly and yeah, it could always be much worse. I suppose the best place to start since we're talking about film and music is about film and music. So. Just a quick question, like, what's your kind of music background? And, and then maybe going from there, what, what are you listening to right now and your recommendations that I can follow, is it music or not? Sure. Uh, I mean, music background, I mean, I I got into sort of rock music and that kind of thing through my parents and my dad and stuff from a young age. Um, so grew up listening to quite a lot of rock bands and that kind of stuff. Um, some of which I talked about on our friend Steve's podcast, yeah. the fantastic podcast uh, that you've also been a guest on. Um, yeah. In parallel, though, and topical to this one, I mean, I really got into film music really young. Um, okay. And when we were young, I think the thing that was interesting in film music, it was actually really hard to like, get your hands on. So you'd see a film, you could really get into the score, but it was actually really hard to like buy and obtain film music. It wasn't, you couldn't go into like, our price, Sparking Side, that we've talked about, and pick up the score to, you know, like Aliens. Because obviously, like, when you and I were growing up, sorry to cut you up there, when you no. and I were growing up, it was, it, we would, we would like go to yours or go somewhere and watch a film, but we wouldn't ever like then kind of deconstruct the soundtrack. It was just, we'd focus on the film, then we'd go home. But so, so are you kind of saying that when we were, say, 15, 16, 17, you were like analyzing the scores as well as the film? Secretly, yeah. I mean, I think like, in a way, maybe it wasn't something I, I knew whether other people would be into as much, but I see plenty of films that I wouldn't even like as a film, but the score, something would really get me, and I'd just have to get hold of the score. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and there was different ways of doing that back then. I mean, I remember when I used to get my birthday money when I was really young, I'm talking about when I first got like a Discman CD player, hmm. I think I was like 10 or 11, Christmas money, I always used to ask my parents to take me to HMV. That was, you know, still is obviously a great store. I remember getting the Star Wars like box set, the CDs, all the music from Star Wars. Yeah, and yeah. I just, I like burn a hole in those CDs. I just couldn't, I, I mean, that was from growing up the first film music, the John Williams type stuff that really got me. Cause obviously um, like, I was going to say like, cause knowing you for so long, when, when we were like listening to music, when we were kind of 16, 17, it was all like trance breakbeat and all that. But obviously, like the Star Wars OST was very much classical, uh, you know, like kind of what you'd see in kind of the Barbican. So how were you like squaring listening to breakbeat and then like sticking on a bit of, I don't know, like anthemic classical music almost? 
<laughs> well, if you think of it though, think of an act that you and I both really got into, hybrid, right? Yeah. What was the thing that one of the things that I loved the most about hybrid was how they fused those two things together, right? So oh, they had symphony. Yeah. New school breaks, and then they had a huge Russian symphony orchestra where they had sampled every note of the they were one of the pioneers of doing that, right? Sampling all of the orchestral players up the up the synthesizer, up the sampler keyboard, and then having that massive orchestral sound with the big new school breaks sound. Yeah. To me, it was unbelievable. And it's no surprise they went off onto film scoring, right? I mean, that's really what they do more of now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other artists as well, if you think of the trance stuff, if you think about some of that stuff, I'm not so much in, I don't listen to it as much now, but they were, I mean, used to buy crates of the stuff. You know, we used to be really into it. Uh, I used to be. Mm. Um, you know, the big epic breakdowns, if you think about what they are, like the big string laden, big string breakdowns and stuff. I mean, some of those guys were even sampling like James Horner, Braveheart. Do you remember there was that? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. It was all that kind of sound. There is a lot of crossover between that epicness and then what you get from film scores. Um, I even remember some of the heavier stuff that you lent me. Um, you lent me a CD. What was it? Tony DeVee. Yeah, yeah Tony DeVee. And Tony DeVee had like a couple of DJ sets where he would drop stuff that would have those that, that really big sound, even though it was quite hard you know, dance stuff, mm. still had it in it. So my favorite stuff is the stuff that blurs those lines, brings all those different sounds together. That's when I'm like in my element. But I do, I will listen to a classical orchestral score to something like Star Wars on its own. And yeah, it just invokes a lot of feelings and memories and visualization to me when I listen to it. And just as a little aside, like obviously, you know, we discussed before this, what we were going to be chatting about. Do you listen to kind of classical music as a general thing? Would you stick on like, I'm going to show like Mozart, Beethoven, or is that not something that you're particularly into? No. I'm really, <laughs> Fair enough. I'm really, really ignorant. Like I'd say really ignorant of that kind of music and not to say that I wouldn't or shouldn't know more about it. I don't. To me, there's something about film music, the energy, the way that film music evokes emotion, builds energy in a scene, the way, it, you know, I've been to concerts at the Albert Hall to see the films with the live orchestra. So I've done like Gladiator, Leah took me to see Jurassic Park. That was really good with that. I've been to concert nights of just John Williams, uh, Hans Zimmer music, just played by the orchestra. And I love that. But if you took me to see like Hulse, the planets yes. or something, I don't know, I'd probably be bored. I don't know if yeah. I would, there's always something to behold. Live orchestral music is incredibly, it's a great sound. If you, anyone listening hasn't heard it, you know, if you're in the Albert Hall, there's no amplification. You've just got the orchestra, the raw sound of that. It's always going to make you, it's always impressive, even if you mm. don't know the music. No, oh, agreed. Um, agreed. No, I mean, it's the same for me. I, I remember when I first got Spotify, I did like a playlist of classical and I had also got one and a half thousand tracks on there and I never touched it. Never. <laughs> no, touched it. no, it's not for me really. <laughs> Interestingly, if it's not film related, it's, it's not for me. It's okay. So these, uh, they're moving on to um, kind of, Actually, no, I'm going to ask you. We've both got a little bit of a background in like music production. I say background, like we've released music and we've made millions. We haven't. Um, we've both <laughs> put stuff out there. Just talking about like the film score thing, what, when you were producing, what were your kind of most used uh, synths, your soft synths? What, what, what would you draw for when you fired up Cubase or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I was always trying to replicate that string sound. That was the thing for me. Um, when I was um, probably, what was I, when I was like 11 or 12, I inherited like a synth, a really basic one step up from like Casio Red mm. demo button type machine from my, when my granddad passed away, my, he had it, he had all the notes, stickers on the keys. My, 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 nan and my grandma gave it to me. Okay. And my mum could play great piano. She's an excellent pianist. Um, okay. And she showed me a bit, but even from that, that had like a really rubbish string setting. And from that, I was always trying to replicate, you know, and it went up from there. When I finally got a job and I saved up a bit of money, I got something called a Korg Triton. Yes. You might remember when I... I, 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 I think, did I go and buy it with you? Or was that the one before that? I What's that, sorry? Did I go and buy that with you? You did. I think, I think you did. We picked it up from like some shop. <laughs> we did. Well, what a great memory. I'd forgotten that until you said that. Um, and that was so old school that it didn't have an ability to like connect to the computer and upload. I mean, it was pretty good for its time, but you had to buy like memory boards with yes. like sound packs and it had a memory board, which was like strings, you know, it was the closest thing to like what we get now, which is different class now, um, the sampled string sounds. So I had that, I had that for years. And then with the Cubase stuff from, you know, if people don't know, that's like a production station for recording music, a digital audio workstation. Um, 
it got better and better. And there's a company now called Spitfire Audio. Yes. And they, night and day, in um, really big, famous recording halls, sample every note of every instrument, huge brass sections, runs, strings. And now you can sit at the piano now and you can hit a chord or hit a note and you could have a whole hall of players play. You know, it's unbelievable. If you could have played that to me when I was eight, I wouldn't have believed it. Everyone takes it to try yeah. <laughs> I'm the Korg Triton, exactly. Um, what kind of go-to, like, if, if you're going to do something now, what would be the kind of soft thing that you'd pull straight in? Um, I use Cubase now in terms of record, what I record in. I use a lot of those Spitfire instruments. Um, I've got a bit more back into it recently of trying to record music for film clips and film scores. Yes. Spitfire ran a competition recently for like Westworld and I had a go at that, a three and a half minute clip. Um, and what you can do is with Cubase, you can drop the video into the timeline in Cubase. Yeah. Time, the tempo track to what's happening on screen, so it will speed up and slow down and then you can just start recording in all your layers. You can mm. lay down your, your brass, your strings, your percussion, and you keep building it all up. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there's almost more stuff in it that I have any of the time to actually learn how to use it all, right? There's so much you could do. Um, so now these days, it's all sample libraries that I use. Rather yeah. than in the old days, you'd see the pictures of the guys. They got the racks of synthesizers and yeah, gear, yeah. right? The picture of the guy like, looking over the mixing desk with you know, 300 grand's worth of boxes behind him. I think that's less and less the case now. More and more of it is done you know, in the computer with sample libraries, recordings of real players and, you know, synths are still a big thing. You know, if you use some of the things we're hopefully going to talk about today, you know, mm. a lot of it was still turned to retro hardware equipment. Proper, the real deal to get a sound, a warmth that you can't get out of digital, no matter how hard they try and replicate yeah, yeah. Right. It's very hard to recreate some of that classic synth sounds. So, um, yeah. I still miss having like physical gear. I had an access virus synth for a little while. Don't yes. So that was a modular synth that you'd plug your keyboard into and that that's used by a lot of people still today. And that, that had some really great proper, I kind of wish I still had that. I flogged that. I and I can't, I can't move on before I ask you, do you miss the days of the, uh, what was it called? Um, when the chaos pad, you yearn for those days again. I do a little bit with this six, six second sampling memory, oh. you know, uh, with our friend Dan Stone, we used to record some, Great, like rock dance crossover. You guys did. You guys did. Was that the Driver Twenty One stuff that you were doing? Yeah, the Driver Twenty One stuff. For example, six seconds of him doing a riff, and then you'd have to touch this chaos pad. It was basically a square box with lights on it. It looked like a kid's toy, really. It looked like some kind of like uh, like that Simon thing. You had to remember the coloured lights and what. Was like that. Um, yeah, and he'd record a riff, and then I'd stand there with one finger hitting the screen to trigger this riff. Most of the time, you'd reverse them as well. You could reverse with it. Which yeah, yeah. Like the future at the time, you know, it was like amazing at the time. I do remember just before we move on, Andy and Dan uh, did record. What was it? It was heat. Wasn't it? it was a coffee shop that you made. Yeah. Like they, they took a bit out of heat. And I remember sitting in Andy's car for about an hour. Just repeat it. Play, play it again. Play it again. <laughs> play it again. It was just amazing music. And I know, didn't you like almost remaster that a couple of months ago and shove it up somewhere? I did. It's on SoundCloud under Driver Twenty One Coffee Shop. If you want to find it, uh, until it gets taken down, probably because yeah, I have, <laughs> obviously massive. We have massively sampled <laughs> the film Heat in it. Um, but yeah, for Dan's fortieth birthday, I remastered some of our old tracks for him. Uh, so you know, boosted up the volume, made them sound a bit more fresh again, and sent them to him for his birthday. So they're on they're on SoundCloud under Driver Twenty One. Yeah. Superb, superb. All right, and I suppose before we start, I think that the general idea is we've agreed that we'll go three for three. We'll have a little chat about three of our favourite OSTs and just a bit of the history, a bit about the film and a bit of discussion. But obviously I've asked you about music, not about films. So I just think, you know, it, what, what, it's a tough question. Any kind of real standout films for you in your film viewing career, so to speak, anything that you'd really recommend? Wow, yeah, I mean, this is massive. <laughs> you and I both love films. Um, I, I could go for this for hours on this, but probably all-time classics for me and films that I come back to again and again, Midnight Run, which yeah. actually I asked Leah to watch. It's probably your ultimate uh, buddy comedy film, great score as well. Robert De Niro, I think is fantastic. Um, you know this one, Dead Man's Shoes with Paddy yes. Considine. It's a bleak film, but Paddy Considine is an intense actor, great writer, 
So that that's a real classic for me. Um, and I also really love um, The Hurricane with uh, Denzel Washington. That's a real classic. I've watched that so many times. He's another favorite of mine. Him, De Niro, probably my two favorites. Um, and more recently, I quite like the run of um, Mark Wahlberg stuff that he does with... Uh, Peter Berg, he's done Patriot's Day, Lone Survivor, Deepwater Horizon. They're all sort of real life retellings of stuff. I quite like in recent times. I've liked those a lot. Um, yeah. I can't, uh, I can't carry on without, we had a little chat on WhatsApp through the week out in the Washington and we, we were riffing on Glory and the, uh, you know, the bit with the solitary tear when he's getting caned. I mean, it's, it's quite apt these mad times but what a film that was and uh and Brawa and you know so many great actors Matthew Broderick was in there as well what a film it's amazing yeah I mean yeah, Dan Dan Dan. Dan. <laughs> yeah I think that so go on no 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 that was it that was it yeah I just think he's like um that was an early in his film career moment where you think yeah this is the, the just the look in his eyes the whole acting in that scene is incredible and the score is incredible as well it is it is it is indeed Right, so uh, what we'll do, as said, is um, we'll have a little three for three. So I've, I've asked Andy to just think about three kind of film scores that really reflect what he's into. I've picked three of mine. I, I, I shared my initial thoughts with Andy, but I, I've changed two. Um, I don't know what Andy's going to pick. We'll have a little chat about kind of what the film's all about, what the score's all about. If you listen to any of my podcasts before, I've gone, gone in quite heavy with the random facts. So apologies, Andy, if I bore you of any of this. Uh, yeah, so kick on. Go for it. All right, let's do this. So my first, oh, my first. Um, where am I? I have to edit that bit out. Whatever. My first uh, film that I want to chat about is a film called Akira, um, which was directed by Kazuhiro Otomo and uh, released in 1988. And it was kind of that first real breakthrough. Um, what do you want to call it? Like an anime film. Um, based on the manga of the same name. And when we were kids, I don't know, I don't know if you ever got into it, Andy, but like Legend of the Overfiend, all these Japanese films coming out used to blow my mind. But it was Akira that really, that was like number one. And that was one that got me. You know, just to describe the film, it was kind of a post-apocalyptic cyberpunk film, motorbike gangs, mind control, telekinesis. And the, the, the bit that stands out for me is, is when this guy Tetsuo, one of the main protagonists, uh, turns into this, this huge blob at the end. It's just, it's a mad film. If, if you've not seen it, it's well worth watching. Though I assume uh, most people will have seen it. Um, in terms of, just before we actually go to that, have, have you seen Akira? I have seen it I, I, I'm pretty sure you had it on VHS or something. I did have it on VHS. And I remember you saying to us guys, we've all got to see it. And I, I, so that's when I last saw it. So when we were in our teens. Um, so a long time ago, over 20 years ago or something, probably. Yeah, yeah. I just, I do remember the scenes with the huge blob. Uh, yeah, the huge that, blob. Take with me. That's yeah. it. But it was I, um, Go on. I, it's impressive. I remember enjoying it at the time, but I need to revisit it. I think it's one of those films where I was watching it when I was 15 and I didn't really get any of it, but it was so different. It was like, yeah, I'm just going to watch this, but I've got it on like DVD, not even Blu-ray now, and I still watch it and it just blows my mind. The, yeah. um, in terms of the score then, so the score background, the, 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 the original variant of the score is called the original Symphonic Suite, and it was composed by a guy called uh, Shoji uh, Yamashiro, and it was performed by a collective called the Gaino Yashirugumi, that was the pronunciation. And basically, it was just the hundreds of random men, mostly, non-professional musicians, and they just came together to, to do this thing. And um, really influenced by the uh, gamelan, the Indonesian gamelan uh, music. Um, and, uh, you know, you must know this, whenever you load up a soft synth or a synthesizer, there's always a gamelan preset whenever you fire this stuff up. Um, so I own the CD. It was released by JVC in 1991. Uh, but there's a far cooler variant. It's a, they've re-released the whole original score on two bits of vinyl, two times vinyl, 2019 Milan records. It was limited edition. 500 numbered, fully remastered, clear vinyl, three bits of vinyl with red, yellow, and orange splatter. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I was on eBay this morning. It's going for about 50, 60 quid now. But I think that's on the low level. 
Yeah. My JBC CD might get me about three quid. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I suppose that the tracks that are worth listening to, and if, if Andy, you're going to revisit at Kira, you can listen out for these. Um, the first one is a track called Canada, and it's used in the opening scenes. It's when they're doing a bike trace across um, Neo-Tokyo, post-apocalypse kind of Tokyo, and it's just pure gamelan. It's just pure brass. Uh, that's all it is. And it's a lot of chanting going on, a lot of like building, a lot of call and response. Um, and you can really hear just like, I don't know how much gamelan was used within it, but it just comes to this crescendo. And the, 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 the chant is just like a call and response of um, Kaneda and Tetsuo, the two main protagonists. And it just builds into this madly like ambient kind of, well, I don't know how to describe it. But yeah, absolutely mad. Um, possibly a bit different to like Zimmer and Richter and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really nice stuff. The, um, the second bit I'd recommend, and if you see the film, it's quite relevant where it is, called them um, Doll's Polyphony. And it's when the main protagonist, Tetsuo, confronts these three little kind of espers, these three little weird children. Um, and if you watch the film, you know what I mean by that. And then he suffers hallucinations of like dolls coming to life and stuffed teddy bears coming to life. Um, and the track is just polyphony. And if, you know, listeners don't know what polyphony is, it's a two or more melodies playing at the same time, just totally um, in and out of time. And again, it's quite cool and response, but halfway through they're adding this vocal drone of this like Japanese baritone. Yeah, it just comes in. And there's a bit in that scene where uh, he steps on a glass and starts bleeding. And then the hallucination, the blood turns into milk. And that's when the kind of polyphony, there must be about 20 tracks playing at the same time. It's just nuts. And um, before you fall asleep, my, uh, my, my third standout track on Akira is called Illusion. Um, and the, the, the reason I like this is because it was sampled by um, a kind of hardcore collective, like breakbeat hardcore collective in 1990 called Spiral Tribe. And they called a track called Ragaboon. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they took the main synth, the main pad out of it. And this makes my hair stand up on end. Um, it was used in a scene where it tells the backstory of these three little espers, these three little, like, gifted kids. And, they, you know, they're in this compound, this mind control, this telekinesis going on. It, it's, it's a real kind of crazy scene. It's a 14-minute long track. And the first four minutes are just gamelans and synths. They actually use synths. I couldn't find out what synth it was. But it's just pure beds, washes, pads. They're bringing a little flute. And then the, the bit that maybe goes a bit off track is then there's another 10 minutes of, again, this Japanese baritone singing. It doesn't make it into the film, maybe fortunately. But it, it's, it's, to me, like, illusion is, is a lesson in ambient music. The opening four minutes, minutes remind me of, like, Eno, Biosphere, Lossil. And I really think if that was going to be made again today, you'd be doing that on something like Omnisphere, you know, Spectrosonics Omnisphere. You, you get that kind of sound out. So yeah. it, it, there you go. There's that, that's my little analysis of the Akira soundtrack. That's like my first look. Um, yeah, so if you're going to watch it again, there you go. So I'm going to pass the baton over. Let's, let, let's hear your first recommendation. Nice. I definitely, I definitely need to revisit that. Akira, I know they're always rumoring they're going to do a live action version, but basically like it's practically unfilmable because of the scale yeah, of what was done in the animated version. Um, but the score sounds amazing, so yeah, I definitely need to check it out properly. So for me, I mean, as I mentioned, at first, when I was really young, I got into quite a lot of what you call conventional scores, you know, a traditional orchestra. So things like I said, Star Wars, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, Superman, all the John Williams stuff, Alan Silvestri did Back to the Future. Then latter years, I got into people like James Horner and Thomas Newman, who did things like Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty. You know, James Horner did Aliens and uh, Braveheart, things like that. Obviously, uh, American Beauty was quite a seminal OST because you had the, um, you had that trance track, didn't you? I forget the name of it. That 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 kind of went really mainstream. Do you know the American one that I mean? Dream? American Dream, I think. Was That's it. That's yeah. it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it worked quite well, the remix, actually, to be fair. I mean, uh, but it did kind of rinse it out a little bit. That was the only thing. It was kind of everywhere for a while, wasn't it? It got a bit played yeah. out. Um and yeah, and that film obviously probably a bit of an uncomfortable watch now, given the uh, main actors' subsequent behaviours. But um, Absolutely. Yeah, the score still stands up. But I'm I'm leaning away from all that stuff, and I'm going to talk about a few hybrid scores, which you said you know kind of lean towards what I love the most about music and stuff. Mm. And this has like become a much bigger thing, I think, in recent years. So many scores now are hybrid scores, where you've got you know, synthesizers, guitars 
beats and breaks and orchestra all brought together. We're like composers now that do so much prep and production themselves in the computer and stuff before they bring the orchestra in. So there's a lot of that out there. I do, there's loads of it I love. I listen to loads of it. Um, there's a lot of almost rants here. Um, maybe we'll come back to those if you tell me we have time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the first, first one I'll mention is uh, Hans Zimmer's take on Blade Runner, Blade uh, This yes. came out a few years ago. Now, people talk about synth scores. A lot of people talk about Vangelis and you know Blade Runner, 1982, um, you know, proper synth laden driven score probably one of the best really and i think anyone would want to follow uh that score and do anything for the sequel um they actually commissioned i think a rapper lp to do the score initially he tried the trailer got the original like yamaha csae which is the synth that vangelis riddled that score with okay Um, they didn't like it and they fired him (laughs) they then they then hired uh johan johansson who did the music he's was brilliant. He did the music for Sicario. If you've seen that movie, yeah, really deep brooding synths and beats and straight incredible. Uh, he did Arrival as well. Uh, it's the same director, Denis Villeneuve, who does the new Blade Runner film, who did yeah. Sicario. Anyway, he got all the way into actually cutting a score, and they just they just felt he was being. I think I don't know if it was too slavish to the original. They just didn't dig it. He was contractually forbidden to say why, but then they fired him pretty late doors. Um, unfortunately, he then went on to take his own life, which is a proper tragic part of the story. Um, so you now, I think, have months to go, um, and Hans Zimmer was drafted in, who I think was probably one of the few people where you could think has probably got, it's not just him either, Hans Zimmer has a massive team of programmers and engineers, and he's a brilliant talent, but he doesn't work alone very often. Yeah. They brought him in, and he seen a guy called Benjamin uh, Wolfish, um, and he is also an amazing talent in his own right. And the two of them put together this hybrid score for Blade Runner 2049. Um, and it balances perfectly using cutting edge new synths and sounds, the orchestra. They also use that old synthesizer, the CS80. They bring it all together and it's so well produced and so well put together. There's so much music, um, over 90 minutes, I think, of music in the film. It's a long film, it's a 10-hour film. yeah. Um, and when you watch the film, it's just like a visual and audio assault anyway. Um, but it's really good. There's a cue at the end, which is the end titles where they list off about 800 visual effects artists that worked on it. I think it's about a 10 minute cue just called Blade Runner. If you check that out, um, you know, you'll see what I mean. You can also get it on a special 180 gram vinyl set. They do at that as well, which I think is a bit of a collector's item, probably still available from your, uh, local entry in V or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this Benjamin, Wolfish guy as well. I mean, he he is in his own right. He did the music for the new uh, Invisible Man movie. Yeah, you check that out. The score for that, the synths and stuff on that. That is, he's really good. He's he's from a long line of musicians, though. I think his uh, grandma or grandparents were in the Women's Orchestra of Auschwitz. Mm. Uh, so uh, his parents were orchestral players. So he's got it in his blood. But yeah, the the, the, the score overall. Um, it lost to the Grammys, actually, so the Black Panther score, which okay. is a pop crossover score, also worth checking out. It's another great hybrid score. Um, but yeah, the Blade Runner, just the sound from the opening credits when it comes back over that same landscape from the original film, yeah, and you hear the score kick in. So like the last beat of the film, it's so well put together. And yeah, it's an amazing hybrid score, definitely worth checking out. That sounds mad. Um, I'm going to be totally upfront with you. I've seen the original. I swerve the um, remake. Um, not for any real reason, but I think that um, I shall be definitely getting onto it. Obviously, I mean, I don't know. Did, did it receive a bit of a bad rap as a film, or was it well reviewed? I have no clue. It's, it's, it's a, I think it was reasonably well reviewed. It's a good film. It's a bit dense. It's a bit long, two hours, 40 minutes long. A lot of Ryan Gosling sort of brooding about yeah, yeah. sci-fi landscapes. But visually and audio-wise, even if you, no matter what you think ultimately of the final story, mm-hmm. uh, I think, which I think is good anyway, yeah. it's such a slickly put together audio-visual treat. You, know, you can almost watch it like it's a demo reel or something. It's that good. Um, so definitely check out the score, if not the film. I shall be getting on it. So tonight after this, you'll be on Akira and I'll be on uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I'll be listening to some serious chanting and gambling stuff. <laughs> yeah. We'll be listening I... to some dark brooding synths. 
Superb. Okay, so uh, number two for me, and then uh, you may have seen this, I don't know, a film called Walks with Bashir, um, directed by Ari Folman, released in 2008. You seen that? Yeah, and this is a great score. This is a great choice. Thank you. All right, so a little bit of background then. The film is a um, Israeli animation about the director, Ari Folman. Um, he served with the IDF during the Lebanon War, and the film is him trying to kind of piece together memories of his time and his, and his comrades' time in that war. Um, for me, the standout scene is, and this is going to be quite non-descriptive, um, there's a bit when he's in sea, and I'm assuming it's... I don't know what sea it is, actually. I, I, I thought it might be the Dead Sea, but I don't think that could be right. Um, but the IDF is shelling into Lebanon, and I don't know if you remember this, the screen just goes like orange sepia. And I'm assuming that's due to the idea of shooting phosphor and phosphorus, that kind of stuff. And he's just floating in the sea. His ears are underwater. Some sea goddess hallucination goes on. Um, and the, the track used in that is part of the score. It's called I Swam Out to Sea and Return. It's a two-part. Fantastic. Yeah. But in short, you know, it's a film about PTSD, and we know a lot about that. Um, comes through in some of the scenes you know a, a lot of the scenes are quite hallucinatory they're embellishments rather than the reality of the situation so where do i start walter bashir i um i thought i'd find out about the name walter bashir first of all and the history of why it was called that so the bashir in walter bashir comes from um bashir gemayel who was actually leader of the lebanese forces um so it was obviously against bashir gemayel and the waltz part comes from um uh, Ari Folman's commander taking a machine gun and part of the line is he dances an insane waltz shooting down a road in like downtown Beirut and shooting at posters of uh, Bashir Gemayel and the background score to that scene was Chopin's waltz in C minor so that's where the waltz the uh, waltz of Bashir name actually comes from now the um the whole thing was done, uh, it was scored, it was designed and curated and recorded by Max Richter. And I assume a bit like Hans Zimmer, he would have had a real team behind him. And I, I read an interview with Richter about Walter Bashir, and he said he wanted the music to provide an active commentary to the film rather than being like a simple accompaniment. So it was good there to complement what was going on with the animation. It was very orchestral in its nature, I think pads, sounds, violins, and some of the bits that I enjoyed were the kind of more plucked violin rather than the bowed violin. But what Richter said was he would distort and he would low-pass filter most things going through. And quite a lot of the scenes have got um, low-pass filter drums, and the drum beats would sound more like ammunition and artillery being fired than actual drum. But some of the better tracks on there are actually with kit, snare, uh, a tom, a hi-hat, you know, that kind of real drum pattern stuff. Um, but according to Richter, he knew very little about kind of that, you know, conventional drum programming. And the other thing that he blended in because of the time in 1982 Lebanon War, he put in a lot of 80s synth pop. And again, Richter says, I knew nothing about this scene and I had to discover the scene to put it in. So I'm just going to mention two tracks that stick out for me from, from the score. The first one is called Boaz and the Dogs. It's the part of the opening scene. Um, it's really distorted. It's kind of a 1990s breakbeat sound going on. Um, and, and you spoke about hybrid before, as, as in the act, not hybrid scores. It reminds me of a track called Visible Noise by Hybrid on the second album, released on 2002 on Distinctive Breaks. Um, but then like an acid bass line comes through and the scene is just dogs running around. Um, I think it's in Israel. Uh, it was part of a dream by this guy called Boaz. And I did a little bit of reading on Boaz. He's a real guy. And it transpires that Boaz was part of the IDF, but he refused to shoot people at wartime. So he was recruited to shoot dogs in Lebanese villages. So before the IDF went in to clear out a village, he will go in and he will go and shoot all the dogs in the village oh, to kind of save, uh, save some time. So mad stuff. The second bit, and I'll, I'll leave you with this bit. Um, they, and again, I, I wouldn't really call myself a fan of like 80s synth pop. Um, I should be, but I'm not. But they used Enola Gay by OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Um, and it was used in a scene where just, yeah, Fulman's looking on, bombs are dropping all around. And it's quite profound for me because obviously the Enola Gay, if we, you know, think about our history, uh, that was the um, B-29 bomber that carried the nukes to Hiroshima. Um, 
So this was released in 1980. It was part of the first wave of music produced on synths and sequences, quite experimental. The lyrics, if, if you people listen to it, very much anti-war. And to me, it's all about that synth hook. And I, I, I was semi-thinking about before we started recording, do I like sing it to you? And then I thought, actually, no. People just go on YouTube and <laughs> discover it. Oh, come on. But um, on a cool Gen 500 micro preset, really old Korg synth made out of wood. Um, and the track is built around, and again, music production, it was built around the 50s chord progression. So that, and you can find that in so many other scores. My final point on the Enola Gay, a little bit of minutiae for you. It was well known in the early 80s as an anti war song. But obviously it had the word gay as part of the title. And the British media, so naming no names, misconstrued it as a homosexual love song, um, which is what the British media do. So in the climate of 1980s Britain, um, it was banned from being used in any children's TV output. And it's quite a notorious case and a very bit before our time. We were quite young at that point. What was it, the multicolored swap shop? Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And they were going to use that on an episode, and the BBC said, no, nah, you ain't promoting homosexuality to children. Um, that's really all I can say, but just, yeah, this blend of, like, real, I suppose, like, hybrid, like you say, synths, pads, and all this, but then this kind of 80s synth pop popping in um, with that beautiful stop-motion animation, just, what, yeah, you've seen it. What a film. What a film. Amazing. And by the way, as soon as I saw the film on DVD, I bought the score off uh, iTunes because yes. the soundtrack, the songs and the score is like a combined thing. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe we haven't talked about this more. No. Did at the time, but yeah, completely with you. 2008, it's a long time ago, and that's, you know, 12 years ago. I suppose we were on different planes at that point, but yeah, and maybe it's not like, uh, you know, when you're out for a beer going, so <laughs> everyone else can shut up. Andy, Max Richter's Max Rich score, what do you reckon? <laughs> Exactly, but it is amazing. It's a great choice. Good stuff. All right, number two from your good self. Sure, number two for me is um, the score for the film Gravity by a guy called Stephen Price. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is, there's so much going on in this score. Um, Stephen Price is a composer. He hasn't done loads. Um, he's kind of worked his way up through the ranks. He's been like a music editor on Batman Begins for Hans Zimmer. He's been an arranger for people. You know, sometimes when you hear of these, you know, these dance acts, uh, or, or electronic musicians who make a score, you know, like one that almost made this for me is Daft Punk, uh, Tron, Legacy. It's an amazing score. But they work for two years with an orchestrator, you know, um, and that person takes what they play on the synths and then maps it out over huge string sections and orchestra. And there's a lot to be said for those people. They may not be named or credited directly always, but, you know, they're behind the scenes. Anyway, Stephen Price had done a lot of that. His first proper score collaboration was with Basement Jacks, an artist mm. who, you know, uh, was definitely in our, our youth and came... Oh, well. Prolific. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, I like them. I think they're good. They put out some really good stuff over the years. They did the score for Attack the Block, which is yes. actually uh, a fun film. It's really good. Um, it was the sort of breakthrough for uh, John Boyega as well. He's great in the new Star Wars films. Um, and basically... I quite like the I quite like the Attack of the Block score, but it's not a drop in the ocean against what he did for this uh, score for Gravity. So, you know, for those of you who haven't seen Gravity, I'm sure most of you probably have. It's a pretty popular film. Obviously, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney marooned in space from a space station accident. But the whole point that uh, Alfonso Cuarón wanted the director with the film was no foley sounds, so no sound effects, because in space there is no sound, right? Yeah. Um, so outside of what they say in their helmets and a few things like that, there is no impacts, explosions, you know, whooshes, a lot of the sound, you get, it's not there. So yeah. I think if you're like a composer, this is pretty, pretty daunting, because it means basically, you know, the music is going to have to carry the majority of the film. Um, and if you haven't heard it, uh, I mean, the title track, Gravity, is amazing in terms of what he's, he's put together there if you want to try and pick up what he's done, but they do all sorts on this score. I mean, he took like the trumpets and the horn section, replayed them back through really old synthesizers to create really sort of weird sounding orchestral effects. On any given point, you know, in the left and right ear, if you're, like, if you're listening to it, you can pick out so many synth orchestral crossover sounds. It's got um, a bit like your first choice, Akira. It's got quite a lot of chanting and um, towards the end sort of vocal stuff on it as well. Um, 
but it's just got such atmosphere and it's probably one of the best examples of the crossover and someone who really knows their electronic and really knows their, you know, so not multiple people, one person covering both boxes, you know, the experimental synth based production stuff and atmospheres and, and sounds, and then also doing all the orchestral work. Um, but yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw the film, I enjoyed the film anyway, but I literally, and it was in the days of Spotify now. So in the car home, I had this thing on and I, I, I still listen to it now, uh, out running and stuff like that. And it's a, a score I can listen to all the way through. Mm. The first track is just a silence of space and a slight distorted sound that like builds and builds on the synths. And it comes from like a million miles away. And from like, by track 12, you know, he's just taking you to like a massive, the build on it is just, yeah, second to none. He hasn't actually, he's gone on to do things like Suicide Squad, which I thought was a terrible film. Yes. So I was up that really, he did Fury as well, the war film with Brad Pitt, which is a pretty decent score actually. Um, but he's not taught this. He won the Oscar for this, okay. understandably. But but the work that went into recording this score, I mean, I think you could probably do, like a, he could do probably, I'm sure, a few hours talking about it. Um, but it's an amazing score. Cool. Okay, so um, in number three, I'm going to take us to uh, 1979 Soviet film. Um, I bet you cannot wait. I don't know if you've seen this one, actually. It's a film called Stalker, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, released in 1979. Any idea? Oh, I've heard of it, maybe, but I've seen it. It, it, it's an interesting one. So um, I'm going to put an explicit warning on this one. Um, the film is batshit crazy. So the general idea is that the key player is called Stalker. And what he does, he takes two clients into the zone. Now the zone, think like Chernobyl, think Pripyat, think that film The Abyss. Um, I don't know if you've ever played or listeners have ever played the Russian computer game called Stalker, uh, the same name which is all based around that kind of post-apocalyptic, post-Chernobyl world. And inside the zone is a room which can grant the visitors their most innermost desires to come true. And the, the caveat to that, the, the making of the film, is that the room's been sealed off by the Russian government and to get in requires the trio to overcome numerous traps and crazy things like that. But the, the film in the majority is just three men riffing on life and lots of arguments. There's loads of social commentary on extraterrestrials, the government, the state, the military, conspiracy, and like gratification in life versus selfishness. And one of the key quotes that comes out of the film, obviously it's filmed in Russian, so I'm going with subtitles, um, is that there's nothing else left to people on earth. This is the only place to come to when all hope is gone. So it's quite a bleak film. Now, the score is by Eduard Artemiev. Um, he also did other Tarkovsky films, Solaris and uh, The Mirror. Now, yeah, being yeah. Blunt, I've not seen either of those. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm kind of a stalker man. His films are quite hard to come by, Tarkovsky. I know they did a box set years ago, uh, but that's going for like hundreds on eBay. You can probably get them on like artificial wire, stuff like that. Now, a bit like your, and I forget, man, time flies. One of the scores that you've mentioned, the first take of the score was completely recorded orchestrally, fully recorded, and Tarkovsky listened to it and said, no, not up for this, and binned it, okay? So what he did, he kept on Artemiev, but he said, listen, you need to re-record the complete score using synths and instruments. You do it, and that's pretty much it. I don't want any kind of brass, any, you know, Russian Philharmonic and all that. But what it turned into was this, like, mutant, like, alien soundtrack. And, um, you know, how to describe it. Now, you like many genres of music, Andy, but what, what are your views on dark ambient music? Not ambient, but dark ambient. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think I need to share this out for the sound of things. But, yeah, I mean, I do all that kind of stuff. I have... Definite admiration for. Interesting stuff. So in terms of the points of reference, um, you know, very reminiscent of like Trent Reznor, uh, was he the Nine Inch Nails guy? I think who yeah. I think he scored Quake, I think. I might be wrong on that. He scored something, one of those big 3D shooters back in the 90s. But a bit more Brian Eno, a bit more Lustmord, and a guy called uh, Daniel uh, Kazantsev, who, yeah, very much dark ambient, that kind of stuff. And a bit like your second choice, 
it was noted by Artemiev that the score would blend to background noise. So at times it was quite hard to discern between what was a pad, what was a bed, and then what was actual ambience from the location being filmed. And the and, and reading the interview of Artemiev and with Tarkovsky, they were talking about the score carrying an Eastern versus Western flavor and a kind of element to that to prove that the East and the West could live in harmony. And obviously this was filmed in 1980, so it was like peak Cold War fever. Um, there we go. And what Tarkovsky said, he wanted a soundtrack that could promote calm in a chaotic world. And he described the whole soundtrack as space frozen in a dynamic equilibrium. Um, now, how much more up yourself can you sound as an artist? <laughs> when you listen to it, I get that. I get. I, I kind of get that. You know, it is that the, the soundtrack is quite frozen in time. So in terms of the technicals then, it was recorded fully on an EMS Synthi 100 analog digital hybrid. I'm going to hold my hands up. I have no clue what that is. I'm sure it's a good bit of kit. Um, what he did after that, he then took an, an, an Azerbaijani Azerbi tar, right? And that's a kind of a lute, a pluck lute. Um, and he put that into the mix. And then he got flutes and put that into the mix. So basically it's synths, a tar, and flutes. And then what he did, he passed the, um, the, the, the live action stuff back through the Symphony 100 and he modulated it, he filtered it, and the tar came down in octave and the flute, the speed was modulated. And if you listen to any of the tracks on there, you know, it, you, you can kind of see how modulated it's been. But again, a bit like your second choice, the film carries a hell of a lot of silence. There's so many bits where it's just three men sitting around like this polluted river looking at each other. And there's nothing, there's no ambient noise, there's no folly, it's just pure silence. And that, that to me kind of makes the score more appealing when it actually comes into play. Um, in terms of the externals away from the score, they use a lot of classical, which is kind of why I asked you at the start, because a bit like you, and as I said at the start, I listen to very little classical music, and maybe maybe 2021, our New Year's resolution is to get into classical. <laughs> they use um, Beethoven's Ninth, but again, low-pass filter, um, really muffled. And what Tarkovsky said, like my last quote really, is that he wanted the music, the score to be, and I've quoted this here, to be barely discernible beneath the noise of life. It was more important to hear the three protagonists breathing and grunting rather than that track. Um, in other times, what, what you see is that the, the ambient noise filters in to the soundtrack. So you might have like birdsong or a train or a nuclear power station buzzing. And that then becomes a synth tone and a pulse, and that then moves into some kind of synth line. And they also use Ravel's Bolero, and they use Beethoven's Ode to Joy from that Ninth Symphony. I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. I've got no clue, but you can hear it popping through um, the soundtrack. So for me to finish, I just want to recommend a standout track. Um, the track is called Meditation, and it sounds like... Um, now, again, I don't think you're too into your contemporary Berlin techno, but for, <laughs> for those that are, if ever you heard a track um, by a guy called Steny, a guy from Turin living in Munich called Hera, uh, from the Vostok Smokescreen album released on Ilian Tape, um, I think, and I might be wrong on this, that Steny lifts that pad from meditation and builds that into his track, or he's mimicked it perfectly using mm -hmm. modern technology. But when it's kind of like shoegaze, and I'm, I know that some of our friends, Mark Nicholson, love genres. I don't really get what shoegaze is, but I kind of guess you gaze at your shoes or listening to it. It's very like low key. But when that tar comes in, it's like absolute goosebumps. It's kind of Azerbaijani sound with these synths. It's amazing. Um, and to finish off my, my, my part for today, the soundtrack has been likened to the sound of the end of the world but carrying beauty and destruction. Now you might think that a Russian academic has reviewed this soundtrack and come up with that quote. No, that's from the cultural oracle that is YouTube comments. And I don't <laughs> if you find them that. So Stalker, Tarkovsky, 1979 on an EMS Symphony 100. And I'm gonna put it out there for me of my three, so from Akira, from Walter Bashir, this is a soundtrack that stands out. There we go.
Great. Right. Number three. I've got to check that out. I mean, while you were talking about that and you mentioned Trent Reznor, I mean, he works with a guy called Atticus Russ quite a lot, um, who does really good dark ambient beds and sounds and stuff. They did, uh, Atticus Ross did the score for the Book of Eli. Have you seen, have you seen that Denzel Washington movie? I have done. I have done. Um, it's a great film, but the score for that is one of my favorite ambient scores that almost made the list. But I definitely need to check this stalker out. This sounds, that YouTube comment has put the cherry on the cake to your cell. I, need I to mean, if it. I can interject, it's a three and a half hour Russian film. And when I emphasize the word silence, um, potentially an hour of the film is silence. It, it's it's definitely not a light watch, and it's definitely not something that maybe you and the girlfriend want to settle down to on a Saturday night with a you know a few beers and a prosecco. It, it, it might be a more of an individualist watch, um, potentially when you're feeling quite happy as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could check out the score. That's the thing. So, I, yeah, it's all on YouTube. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. So I think I, at the minimum, I'll check out the score. Um, that sounds good. Um, so last one of my men, um, is maybe initially going to sound like an unlikely one, maybe if you haven't seen it in particular, but it's well, a guy called Daniel Pemberton and it's Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Now this is an animated film that came out, uh, 2018. Um, it's really good. I mean, don't be put off the fact it's an animated film. It's really well done. It's a new take on the whole Spider-Man story. I mean, Spider-Man's got been done obviously a number of times. He's gone through a load of composers. You had Danny Elfman do his take on the music, um, but the Sam Raimi films, the Tobey Maguire ones, that was good. It was all a bit samey, but good, the Danny Elfman stuff. Just the to put in there, is this a Spider-Man yeah. film, the animation with different Spider-Man? So there's like a black, a black yeah. Spider-Man. So I bought this for my son, Nathan, um, when he was about three. And I still haven't watched it with him yet. Is, it, is there a little bit of sinister stuff for kids or is it quite a family-friendly film? It's PG. I mean, it's, there's a couple of moments. I don't, I don't know whether he would, they would bother, hopefully they wouldn't bother him. It's such a colorful, the visualization of the film is amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's a great, it's just, it is a great film. I think you guys, when you both do sit down together, whether it's now or when he's a little bit older, you'll really enjoy it together. Um, the film aside, the score is right up your street. It is um, a hybrid hip hop um, kind of crossover with orchestral, breaks um it, everything that's in there that, that you i think a lot of stuff you and i would like it's got a lot of cues to soundtrack um but basically what daniel pemerson did he sampled and recorded the orchestra um put it down onto like a virtual uh scratch plate in serato and had a, a scratch dj called dj blakey a british guy daniel pemerson's british as well and actually did loads of scratching the actual orchestra playing notes and certain segments. So the whole orchestral soundtrack as well is all cut up and every sort of scratching technique in the book is deployed to sort of remake it interesting. Um, that, I mean, the, the, the way you're saying it reminds me of almost like Hybrid, the first album, that track, was it Sniper? Yeah. Um, that kind of 30 seconds of just scratch madness. It's got that on steroids. It's really good, but um, again, from the opening of the opening credits, when you just get the opening logos, it got some synth sounds come in. If you just listen to the opening track on the album, it's thirty second track. Straight away, you'll get a feel for what this is. The synths come in, it comes in, they start cutting it up. It builds, 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 and then the actual orchestral music on it is really well done as well. I mean, this Daniel Pemberton guy is really talented. He did the music for King Arthur, the recent King Arthur movie. It's not a great film. Hilarious David Beckham cameo, but the the um, the music is 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 amazing. He also did the Man from Uncle remake recently, um, but this is just different class. On my Spotify, top of 2019, top two tracks that I listened to the most in the whole of 2019 were from this album. Okay, um, and I think once you, if you in particular Neil and others check it out, um, there's a couple of cues. There's uh, one called Shoulder Touch. There's which is really good. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing just sounds incredible. It works really well with the film as well. Um, so that's probably one of my latest picks, I would say, out of all the ones I mentioned. Gravity will probably be my primary. That one I mentioned as number two. That's probably, I'm going to be listening to that forever. I'm on day. this tonight. I'm so on this tonight. Once I've, once I've mixed down this episode and put it out, that's me tonight. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's number three for me. Superb. Um, I didn't ask you this previously, so if, and feel free to ignore, but 
were there any near misses? Was there anything that you had this morning that came out this afternoon? Or is this your definitive three? No, I was really toying with The Dark Knight by Hans Zimmer yeah. uh, and Interstellar. Interstellar, he laid on so many synths and um, organs have gone as well. It's such a thick, dense sound. Um, building, building, building. There's a track called Stay on the Interstellar soundtrack, which is amazing. Um, Junkie XL, Tom yes. Holkenberg, um, in recent times, he did the, the, the soundtrack to the new Mad Max movie, um, which has got immense like, beats, percussion, orchestral crossover. The driving energy of that is amazing. Um, M83, um, the franchise, his stuff's on a lot of um, films and stuff. He did the music for the Oblivion movie, but Tom Cruise, I really like that. Yeah. Um, and the other one that was in and out was Clint Mansell, a movie called Moon. I don't know if you've seen Moon with uh, no. Sam Rockwell. No. Um, so it's by David Bowie's son is the director. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and Clint Mansell has done some amazing stuff over the years. He does concerts in his own right. I've gone and seen him at South Bank Centre. He's amazing. Um, but his score to Moon is really good. Um, so that was that was in and out. And the only other one I mentioned one of our earlier parts of the conversation with this Atticus Ross soundtrack to Book of Eli, the ambient soundtrack to that is really, really good. So yeah, I mean, I probably could have gone on. As I said, it's really good. You kind of end up delving into all these old playlists and reminding yourself of all this great stuff and revisiting it, which is a great thing about this whole conversation. But yeah. I think that's it. I mean, I think, you know, when we were kind of thinking about this, I, I mean, I also mentioned to you almost like gaming soundtracks, like, you know, people focus and we focus on film soundtracks, but at the moment, you know, playing like these new gen consoles, uh, the Switch, the PlayStation, whatever, you know, and obviously I, I've got a Switch, so I've been listening and playing Assassin's Creed Black Flag, but you know, like the sea shanties, they've got these like Cornish guys just like singing pure sea shanties. And we could do, and it maybe could happen, another podcast just on game music and what's going on yeah. with that, because that's a whole other thing. Yeah, a lot of these guys have all done, it, have all done game soundtracks as well. Mm. Um, it's now the production value, I think, of the game soundtracks is right up there with the, the Hollywood blockbuster stuff. You know, it's proper big hybrid orchestral scores. You know, the standard's really high. Um, there's loads of great stuff we could definitely... Well, listen, man, are we, before we uh, depart, are we going to lock in a second podcast on gaming soundtracks then? Let's do it. Let's make I'll, it have to, I'll have to get onto Assassin's Creed Renaissance and deliver some letters before we... <laughs> 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 so, Andy, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Um, I've really enjoyed that. And I think, like you said, you know, we can chat about films. You know, we, we can sit in a pub or around someone's house and chat about films and the film but it's quite rare that people ever get together and say, what about that score? And I think, you know, more and more now, when you watch a film, the score is so like imperative to the film and the narrative. It's nice to actually just sit back and on a Sunday afternoon chat about that rather than the actual content and the acting and the whatever. Definitely. I really enjoyed it. The score essentially, you know, is always the thing that's working you more than what you're seeing on the screen, right? It's some of the, what's coming into your ears and what you're hearing in music. I think most of us, a lot of time, you don't realize it's even doing it to you, but if you take it away, if you revisit some of these films we talked about and you take these scores away and what they bring, you wouldn't feel the same thing. You wouldn't take the same thing away. Right. So I think it's a really powerful part of filmmaking process. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you about it. Pretty good. Wicked. And just my final point, and I might edit this bit out if you haven't got an answer. Worst film score. Is there a film score that you would steer well clear of? <laughs> <laughs> Often I think they go hand in hand, right? So if you think of some of like the worst films you've seen, it happens sometimes differently, but most of the time, if a film is garbage, the score is normally pretty forgettable, right? Because I can imagine whoever's creating the score, whatever comes out of them that invokes that creativity comes often from the material, right? And yeah. one thing elevates the other. Yeah. So I, nothing springs to mind, but I would say most of the bad films I see, occasionally I see bad scores. Right. You know, like Suicide Squad, right? I mentioned that earlier. That yeah, film yeah. is utter garbage, right? I mean, one of the worst films I've seen. But Stephen Price, fresh off an Oscar from Gravity, produced a completely forgettable score for that movie. Um, that's not down to his talent, for sure. It's because the film... That's down to the remake. Right. Right. You know, the material just doesn't bring out, if you took, you know, some of the stories you told for the background to how the music came about for your choices, um, it comes from that like, rich material in the, in the film. 
Yeah. Um, and if that's not there, then the, it becomes just cookie cutter stuff and people exactly. get Exactly, right? exactly. So that was myself in conversation with Andrew Myers about film scores, um, a seriously eclectic selection there. Um, really hope you enjoyed that. What we will do is in the show notes, we'll link to Spotify playlists and links to all the films so you can check out the soundtracks yourself. Um, all that's left to be said is hope everyone is staying safe for those that are going back to work tomorrow uh, in the UK, especially as lockdowns lifted. Good luck, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Future Urbanism Podcast. Peace.